If you'd open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we'll begin today. Your outline says various scriptures because, as you see, looking at your outline, we have plenty. These sort of sermons are topical by very nature, and so as such, rather than starting with one scripture and expositing that scripture to find out what uh, topics are within that scripture, and we let the scripture dictate the topic, these sort of sermons we call topical because we pull a certain topic and we gather various scriptures to support that topic. In this morning sermon, we're considering restoring relationships. Restoring relationships. Um, when we read what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, and if you look at verse 23 in following, you see that's the passage we so often read when we observe the Lord's Supper. But look at how Paul sets it up or introduces it beginning in verse 17. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Did you hear that? No praise for you. In other words, y'all are in trouble. That's how we'd say it down in Texas. Y'all are in trouble and I'm about to scold you. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good as a woe. You think about this, if when we gathered for worship as a body of believers known as Southview Baptist Church, if what we did here did more harm than good in our lives and in the unity and bringing dishonor to God rather than glory to God. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, he had planted that church, but he'd been gone for a while. So now he's writing, based on what he's heard as a report from others, back to them to give them instructions. And he says, verse 19, No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's stating a fact. Some of you are going to be approved by God, i.e., you've been sanctified by God, therefore you'll be living a holy and righteous life. Others of you, not so much. You're still going to have some carnality, and you may, in fact, not even be saved. Therefore, we should see differences among you. That should be evident. So he's, he's granting that. Verse 20, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper you eat? So this is why we call it the Lord's Supper, although we could use the word communion or Eucharist. We use the word Lord's Supper because Scripture refers to it that way in verse 20. Verse 21, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Now, here's the difference in the way they were observing the Lord's Supper versus the way we commonly observe the Lord's Supper. They would actually come together with a fellowship meal, kind of like a potluck. Everybody, I guess, would bring whatever they could bring. Some people brought more because they could or wanted to. Other people brought less because they couldn't or didn't have time. But they came together and they would enjoy a fellowship meal as a church family. 
Remember, their church was probably not meeting in a building that was set aside, but in someone's home. It was a smaller group. And they were coming together for a meal as friends. But what happened, as you see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, is there was favoritism and there was division. And the wealthy people got to sit in the nice seats and the wealthy people were treated well, but those who weren't wealthy were not treated as well. And the wealthy people maybe got a lot to eat, or even if they weren't wealthy, somebody that got there first who was hungry was a glutton and ate too much so that the other person didn't have enough. And what Paul is saying is these physical things about how you sit and how you eat are a demonstration of the spiritual condition of your heart. If you look back over at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Frankly, throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians, you see where Paul is clearly indicating the divisions in the church. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, And you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Jesus said in John 17, 23, and you can write the reference down. John 17, 23. The world will know me because of your unity. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, that I give you a new command to love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That our love for one another that is self-sacrificing, or it's God-powered and it's other-focused and self-sacrificing, that otherish kind of love is the hallmark of what it means to be believers in Jesus. Yet, friends, we've got to admit that even within our church and certainly with other believers in Jesus that we know and then those that are not believers in Jesus, sometimes we're at odds, aren't we? That we don't get along. And frankly, we don't care that we don't get along. But what our Scripture is going to challenge us with today is that in preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper, We need to seek to restore our relationships. So if you didn't write down 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 through 22 on the top of your outline, write that down because that's the foundation to everything that follows. Because that is Paul warning them, you guys are disunified. You guys are arguing and you guys are dishonoring God when you come to the Lord's Supper because of the way you're not Loving one another as Jesus would have you love one another. And that's the foundation to this sermon about restoring our relationships. We've got our scripture memory verse of the month, and it'll come around for us in the conclusion of our sermon as well, but let's read it together. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we know John 3.16, the Gospel of John, tells us that if we believe in you, we won't perish but have everlasting life. It talks about 
your love for us, that you, God, love the world so much, that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. But 1 John 3.16 is different. It's written to us as believers to tell us that we must love one another. As you have loved us sacrificially, focusing on our needs and not your own, you call us to love others. And God, we have to begin by confessing that it's not always easy. Sometimes folks have sinned against us, and they've sinned against us repeatedly and habitually over years or decades. Sometimes we've sinned against others. And it's oh so easy just to ignore those sins and act like everything's fine. Yet you call us to confess, to repent, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. So, Father, may we take these warnings seriously as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper in two weeks, but as we honestly do business with you, God, and maybe even those in our lives that you call us to reconcile or forgive this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Your first point on your outline this morning is seeking reconciliation with those I've offended. Now, you might be a pretty nice person. In general, you're a peace-loving person. You don't desire to or try to cause harm to anyone else. Yet, at times, whether you mean to or not, you are going to offend someone. You need to add another word there, or actually a phrase, after offended, you might say in parentheses, or sinned against. Or sinned against. I use the word offended just to be brief on your outline to make it fit, but you've got a little more space there. And remember, there's two things. You can offend somebody, i.e. hurt their feelings, without actually sinning against them. You could, in complete righteousness, confront them about sin in their lives and offend them by the manner in which you do it or just the fact that you did it. So God calls us to seek reconciliation with those we've offended. As you saw the church at Corinth, it wasn't a perfect place. There was divisions in that church. And our church you know, on the surface, doesn't appear to have such terrible divisions. Yet, I would admit to you that we do have divisions, don't we? Because we're unique and different. We have different political viewpoints. We have differences of theological opinion, differences in the way we like to worship or who we want to lead us or how we want them to lead us. We have all sorts of numbers of differences in this body of believers. And though there's nothing wrong with differences, it's the way in which we handle those differences and relate to one another. And this is a very serious issue with God. When you look at the epistles, Romans, right on through, 
these letters to different churches. Again and again, the writers of those books are confronting the differences and divisions within those churches, whether they be theological or otherwise. That there was division and quarreling, and the church doesn't look like the Trinity unified, but the church looks just like the world. Christian unity is evidence for the lost world of Jesus' love. Our unity in Christ is evidence for the lost world of the love of Jesus. You've got some scripture verses there on your outline, and I want you to join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you know some of your Bible, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching, or more, this initial group of his teachings, ethical teachings or moral teachings, folks might say. And what does he say in verse 23 and 24 of Matthew 5? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. If you remember your brother has something against you, if you have offended your brother in Christ or sister, if you have sinned against your brother or sister in Christ, not that they called it to your attention, but by the Holy Spirit, God called it to your attention. Now, yes, this is talking about giving an offering, but it stands true because offerings are worship. As a principle, that to be applied, it would be the same with our Lord's Supper. That before we observe the Lord's Supper, if God, by His Holy Spirit, brings to our minds someone that we've offended or sinned against, we should make an effort to seek reconciliation with that person. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 10, Paul says to this same church again, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. What makes this verse significant? Well, Think about where it's at in the book. Look back with me in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 is kind of the standard greeting. Paul called an apostle of Christ Jesus, so-and-so. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, so-and-so and such-and-such. Verse 3, standard greeting. Grace and peace to you from our God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4 through 9, my Bible says it's thanksgiving. He tells them all the thing he's thankful for that they are and have done as a church. But then verse 10 begins his concern with the church and his reason for writing to them. And what is the primary underlying idea there is division, disunity, disharmony, that they're arguing and quarreling together and they are not representing God by the way they live with one another. So he's writing to an individual church body. But folks, it applies to all the believers and everyone we know as we consider this. Think about your own lives. 
Are there any relationships in your life that need reconciled? You need to ask questions like this. Have I mistreated anyone with my words or actions? Have I stolen from any person or any organization, even if it was my time? Am I holding a grudge or bitterness or unforgiveness toward anyone for anything? Have I gossiped or slandered someone? Has God impressed me to meet another's needs and I failed to do it and thereby sinned against God and that person? Have I hurt another person due to an immoral act of mine? Have I avoided responsibility towards some other person? Have I covered up some sinfulness towards some other person? Do I have jealousy, envy, resentment, or any kind of other negative effect of my treatment of that person? What about my pride that keeps me from loving someone else? And then we can ask ourselves these questions. Have I sinned against God or any other person by any of the following? Anger, arguing, bitterness, blasphemy, boasting, coarse talk or joking, complaining, cursing, deception, divisiveness, envy, Fits of rage, gossip, greed, hatred, hypocrisy, impatience, impurity, both of your sexual life or your thought life, jealousy, lies, malice, prejudice, pride, quarreling, rudeness, resentment, Revenge, strife, or unforgiveness. With that list in mind, you've got to ask yourself this question. Who have I offended or sinned against? Did I miss that point, Richard? Sorry. Who have I offended or sinned against? When you think of that list I just read to you, surely, if you're like me, at least one of those made you go, yeah, that's me. And that's that person. Maybe you've got more than one. It's sobering to think about our standards versus God's standards. So many times we judge ourselves by other people. I'm better than that guy over there. I go to church regularly and I try to act nice and I do this and I do that. But it's not the standard of the other guy God judges us against. It's God's perfect righteousness. And even our comparison with the other guy demonstrates our pride. And that's a sin. So what? Now what? Let's move to the second point of your outline. And the second point of your outline is forgiving those who have offended me. So the first point was seeking reconciliation with those who I have offended. And I said seeking reconciliation because you can try, but they might be like, no, I'm not going to talk to you or I'm not going to you know, forgive you. And it doesn't matter whether they forgive you or not, but you've got to seek to do it. But when it comes to forgiving those who have offended you, it's not seeking to forgive those who have offended you. You absolutely positively can do this because here's your 
tweet-worthy line here, folks. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness is an act of the will. You choose to forgive, period. Now, I will grant to you that it is a process. There's a point in time which you say, yes, I need to forgive that, and you probably struggle based on how harshly you were sinned against. And then there's a point of time when you surrender and you say, I will forgive. As an act of my will, I will forgive. But what happens is the old devil brings it back and pokes at you. And then there's a continual period in which you say, I did forgive, I did forgive, I'm still forgiving, I did forgive, I'm still forgiving, until somewhere down the road, through time and the graciousness and the blessing of God the Holy Spirit, you get to the point where you don't feel that burden anymore and you're completely free of it. It is a process. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and we must forgive those who have offended us and sinned against us. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. So back in the left of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. What does Jesus tell us? I think I have a wrong reference here. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Then, yeah, that's the wrong reference. Forgive me. I'm looking at verse chapter 10, aren't I? Duh, excuse me. I'm going to have to get reading glasses up here, folks. <laughs> Notice what he says, Jesus, Mark eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Remember the Lord's Prayer. When we pray to God, Father, forgive my trespasses or sins, as I forgive those who trespass or sin against me. We're saying to God, don't forgive me unless I forgive. God says here, when you go to pray, when you are in worship, you must forgive. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. So back behind 1 Corinthians where we were at. 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Did Jesus ask you to do anything to forgive you? Romans 5 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. And he gave himself. His blood shed, his body broken in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and we are to forgive as Christ forgives us. Friends, here's another one to write down. Forgiveness is a command, not an option. Forgiveness is a command, not an option. But here's the corollary. You cannot Truly forgive in your own power. You cannot truly forgive in your own power. 
True forgiveness, total forgiveness, is fulfilled by God's Spirit and His power working in your life and through your life in order that you might be able to do something that's supernatural and release the other person from what they've done. Now, there's some things we need to know about forgiveness, and I preached a sermon series on it a few years ago, and you can go back on the website and look at that, but a few points for you to understand here before we move on. The forgiveness, number one, is releasing the other person from the dead. Releasing the other person from the dead is forgiveness. Number two, the one forgiving is the one paying the price for the forgiveness, just as Jesus did. So when you're offering forgiveness, you're paying that price. Number three, we're never more like Jesus than when we forgive someone. We're never more like Jesus than when we forgive. Number four, forgiveness doesn't mean the offense was not wrong. Forgiveness does not mean the offense was not wrong. It's not excusing them from what they did. It's not saying it's okay. Number five, related to that, is forgiveness is not permission for them to do it again. Forgiveness is not permission for them to do it again. Number six, forgiveness means you don't fully forget. Or excuse me, forgiveness doesn't mean that you fully forget. In some cases, you may need to put up some boundaries. You may need to define or protect yourself from that person. And that is perfectly okay. Just because you've forgiven doesn't mean you should not take those steps. Number seven, forgiveness is unlimited. This is where it gets very difficult. When Jesus was asked, how many times should I forgive? He said, 70 times seven. That's 490 times. What he meant hyperbolically was it's unlimited. That as often as you're sinned against, you must forgive. Now, if you're in a relationship and that sin against you is habitual, this becomes very difficult. But friends... Unforgiveness grows into bitterness and anger and hatred. And those weeds of unforgiveness are noxious and will kill you spiritually. You must forgive. Number eight, even if the offender doesn't repent, we must still forgive. We've bought into this worldly notion that I don't have to forgive them unless they ask forgiveness. Baloney. Show that to me in the Bible. It's not there. We are commanded to forgive no matter what the other person does. No matter their attitude, no matter if they keep rubbing it in our face, no matter if they try to do it again. We're commanded to forgive. And I'm not trying to be mean to you by saying it that way. I'm just pointing out what Scripture says and telling us, friends, we've got to be free from those burdens of unforgiveness if we want to truly worship God. Number nine, even if the offender doesn't believe what they did was wrong, we must forgive. So there's two sides to this restoration of relationship. There's the reconciliation. If I know that I've sinned against someone or offended them, I need to seek their forgiveness. They don't want to try to forgive. They don't want to listen to me. At least I've tried. Then there's the other side. When I've been the one that's sinned against, I must forgive as an act of the will, even though 
All these points are true. Now I'm looking at my watch and I'm going, we got to go quick, but let's get to your question. Who is offended or sinned against me? That one's probably not a hard question to answer. Because if you have some unforgiveness right now, you can probably name it pretty easily. But what I would challenge you to do is don't take it so trite because Pastor Aaron's behind on his sermon and pass right over that, but deal with it more this week, just between you and Jesus. And then with that person. Let's move to the third point on your outline, and that's becoming more like Jesus. You want right relationships, you want peace in your life, then the right thing to do is to seek to become more like Jesus. If we go back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into the likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is in the Spirit. Are we reflecting God's glory? Have we been transformed? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3 says, Dear friends, we know, or now we are children of God, and we, and what we will, I've got to start this all over, forgive me. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, even though we're saved, we're not fully sanctified like Jesus, but we're going to recognize Him when He comes for us. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. In other words, because you know you have been saved and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are going to seek to be sanctified, holy, set apart like Jesus because you love him. But remember, you're not doing that on your own. Your question there asks, what can I do to better reflect Jesus? We've all got stuff, we've all got sin that distorts the image of Jesus in us. It might be pride or disobedience, love of the world, lust of influence or power or control, uh, lack of submission to Jesus' lordship, apathy, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh a lack of love or compassion for others, selfishness, unforgiveness, strife, conflict, an uncontrolled tongue with gossip or slander, a lack of mercy, prejudice, and so on. All those things can infect us and probably do if we do not seek to actively root them out, confess them, and repent and turn away from those things. But what's the foundational step here? The foundational step for seeking to reconcile Offering forgiveness and being more like Jesus is point number four, and it's going to be fast, but if you don't get this one, you don't have anything here. Humbling myself to love others. Humbling myself to love others is the foundational step. It's almost appalling 
to consider Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27. Jesus is about to sacrifice himself on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all humanity. And he gathers together with his disciples to observe the Passover meal. But knowing that he's going to uh, institute in it a different understanding of it that becomes the Lord's Supper for us. And verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them as to which was considered the greatest. What's that? Pride. They're coming together for a worshipful meal. They're coming together with Jesus before he's about to be crucified for their sin, and they're arguing about who's first. Pride. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, But you are not like that. Does somebody have the King James? Doesn't it say, but not so with you? I love that phrase. If you're a believer in Jesus, not so with you. In other words, you must be different. Not you should be different. Not you can be different. You must be different. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not for the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus said it's about humility. Pride is opposed to humility. And the thing about pride that's so dangerous is that it's a, it's, it, it, it's a root sin. Or matter of fact, I don't know if I'd even call it a root sin. It's like the soil that other sins grow out of, right? Arguing and complaining, they come from pride because things aren't going your way. A critical spirit comes from pride. Fault finding arises from pride. Disobedience, I'm going to do it my way, not your way, God. Pride, independence, I don't care what you said, Mom. Pride. Ingratitude, this isn't good enough. It's pride. People pleasing, prayerlessness, rudeness, selfish ambition, sexual immorality, rebellion, gossip, slander, unforgiveness, unrepentance. All these things come from pride. First Peter chapter one. Excuse me, first Peter chapter five. Verse five and six. Young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older than you. All of you. It means every age, not just all the young men, all the people. All of you clothe yourselves with, say it, clothe yourselves with toward one another because God opposes the, but gives grace to the, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You don't have to try to lift yourself up. God will do it as you humble yourself for him. 
as we think about restoring relationships and we see how critically important it is to seek as best as our ability allows to be at peace with all other people, as Scripture says, it's essential to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, but also to live daily like Jesus as we humble ourselves, trusting God to lift us up and take care of us. Let's pray together. God, you told us in 1 John 3.16 that we are to love one another. And that's not always easy. Sometimes we're the one that sins or offends someone else. And we need to seek to reconcile with them. Sometimes we have been sinned against or offended by someone else. And we need to forgive them. Whatever it is, God, that you have pointed out to us and whatever sinfulness is growing from our own pride, would we surrender that to you right now? God, make us humble that we might be like Jesus and forgive and reconcile. Make us humble that we might trust you and see your glory in our life rather than our own doing. So God, whatever it is you need to do, would you do it now as we stand together and sing. In Jesus' name, amen.